Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great discussion with Jim Greenwood, who is the retired CEO of Vision Source. And he was brought into Vision Source in 2013 to really guide them into the new realm of healthcare delivery systems and quality payments and the ability to move the cost of health curve downward. And so we had a really great discussion, mainly about private equity. And so that's what we're going to focus on here. You know, Jim has a very good perspective from his history, even before Vision Source was with uh, a group of 50 individual uh, physicians that provided care for essentially workman's comp, um, drug testing, those sorts of things for local businesses. And that uh, he grew that um, as their CEO to 1,500 physicians and it was owned by private equity. It's called Concentra. And so he kind of tells the story of what has happened to private equity and how uh, over time and, and what we saw happen in the 90s and then in the 2000s and then um, and what he sees going on today as well as some of the end goals that, that he thinks is um, likely to to occur or, or what's likely the, the driving force beyond this. So with that, please enjoy our conversation. As always, subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, and support those who support us. One of the things that it took me a while to wrap my mind around was the need for utilizing a silicone hydrogel lens for my patients who wear daily contact lenses. Nearly all of my patients who wear a frequent replacement lens wear a silicone hydrogel material. However, until a few years ago, very few of my one-day lens prescriptions were for a silicone hydrogel. Part of this was the options we had available, and part of it was cost, at least my perception of the cost. What I was forgetting is that patients wearing a one-day lens are still wearing their lenses for 14 to 16 hours, and they would benefit from a more oxygen permeable lens. You may have the perception, as I did, that a one-day lens made with silicon hydrogel material are going to be too costly for our patients. However, studies show that patients want us to offer them the healthiest options regardless of price. I make it simple to the patient. I explain why I'm prescribing a particular lens based on their complaints or based on what I'm seeing clinically. It sounds like this. Bob, you're wearing a contact lens for most of your day, and in the past, we didn't have as many options for putting you in a daily lens that also allows for optimal oxygen transmission. We now have an option that does this and is as cost-effective as older lenses that you're in. I would love to see how this lens feels to you and looks on your eyes. Done, that's the conversation. And I haven't had one patient who has not wanted to try it. Clarity One Day is an affordable silicone hydrogel lens. Our patients are thankful we discussed with them. Check out the show links for references and see for yourself how to move beyond cost and focus on what's best for our patients. When I, I was public accounting, CPA, okay. and then went to work for a bank that was buying failed banks from the FDIC in the late 1980s throughout Texas. And then Bank One, now Chase, bought us. And the CFO for whom I worked at the bank got into healthcare. Okay. A private equity firm had mm. acquired an emergency room management company. They managed emergency rooms for hospitals. And that same private equity firm subsequently invested in what became Concentra, okay. Concentra Urgent Care. So I joined in April of 1993 this private equity back physician business yep. that was acquiring practices. Hmm. At the time I joined as chief financial officer, we had about 30 physicians 
doing about $30 million in revenue, most of it in Texas. And that company today survived, yep. unlike many that didn't in the 1990s, and that didn't survive, and now has 1,500 physicians seeing you know, 50,000 patients a day in virtually every state. So while I was there, Chris, for 20 years, four years as a CFO, and then 10 years as the person responsible for acquisitions. Yeah, yeah. And then became the chief encouragement officer in 2007. We grew from 30 physicians employed to 1,000 employed physicians wow. and another 500 physical therapists. What do you think, why do you think that that model works in medicine and is, is different in dentistry yeah. or optometry? Well, that model worked, we had about nine competitors. Just like in optometry today, there's a dozen companies, right, trying to buy optometric practices. But it's so dependent on the team, the leadership team. The, who are working with the clinicians. We had a founding physician who was very entrepreneurial, great, charismatic leader, visionary, but he met a business person who became the CEO, and they were truly partners. The business person said, you take care of the medicine, we'll take care of the business, and we'll work together. It was very outcomes-focused. Mm -hmm. We wanted to have high quality, and... We would chase acquisitions against those other eight or nine companies and do all of our work and maybe bid $5 million and somebody else would bid $8 million and, and we would say, what did we miss? Hmm. Well, the problem was we didn't really miss anything. We asked the right questions. Right, right. And two or three years later, the company that paid too much and didn't have the right leadership team and couldn't execute against a plan failed. So we would walk through empty business, empty office buildings, looking at records, and buy it from the banks. Right. That's why I'm so passionate about helping our doctors at Vision Source ask the right questions. Yeah. The thing that really was a catalyst for me last summer was when one of our 57-year-old doctors called. He sent me an email and said, hey, Jim, I've got a proposal from a private equity firm. I'd like to talk to you about it. I re immediately responded and said, yeah, let's talk tomorrow. So I spent 30 minutes on the phone with this doctor, 57, been practicing for 30 years, had two locations, a couple million dollars in revenue, and I asked him some fundamental questions mm -hmm. that he hadn't thought of. Mm -hmm. For example, yeah. who are you going to report to? Where are you going to practice? He assumed he would practice in his two locations. But what I explained was, because the acquirer had locations throughout the state where he, where he was located, odds were that they would move him around. So I said, in your employment contract, does it dictate where you're going to work? Then I asked him, how many patients a day are they going to ask you mm -hmm. to see? He said, I don't know. I said, how many patients a day do you see today? He said, 16 to 18 yep. comprehensive exams. I said, well, what's it going to be like when they ask you to double that? Because that's one of the levers they use to yeah. improve the practices that they acquire yeah. to generate value. And he said, Jim, I'm tired after seeing 18 patients. Yep.
And my, my response was, well, what do you, how do you define quality in terms of the care you deliver to your patients? And is doubling the volume going to be, are you going to be able to deliver the same quality? It was just something to yeah, think about. No, so the, the interesting part about that is that um, when, uh, when I think about the, um, the kind of background of how all that works, the, um, you never really think about those sorts of issues. So the thing I think about with that is that um, those are things that people don't really realize. And it doesn't, my impression would be that it wouldn't happen all at once. It would be, oh, we can increase our revenue by 5% with one patient, right? Like, okay, we're going to add one patient across the board every day. That's what we're going to do. And then pretty soon it's like, okay, well, next time we need to increase revenue, it's another patient and another patient. And so um, have you, what did he think about that? And then what did, have you seen the, the implications of that? Has that actually come to fruition? So I, as I asked him this series of questions, another important question, Chris, that I mentioned or something that he should do in terms of his homework was to ask the potential buyer for a list of other physicians, other optometrists who've sold to them maybe two years ago and see what life is like after. Because when that person is talking to you about trying to buy your practice, you're only going to hear the good stuff. And if you're not equipped, this is a once in a lifetime decision. And so many ODs uh, haven't gotten the experience and the knowledge to ask the right questions. Yeah. So they really know what they're getting into. And then maybe the most important question I asked him, Chris, was, all right, you're 57. You're taking home X per year as an owner. Right. And a doctor. Have you done the math to compare getting this lump sum today and then becoming an employee at, say, 17% of revenue for the next five, six, seven years, have you compared that to owning it for another five years and selling it, even if it's at a lower valuation or multiple five years from now, you're, you're still going to be better off well, when that's you do the, the math. Yeah, that's the, that's the kind of get is we are seeing valuations like there never been and like they're never going to be, right? That's the sort of tagline that I've heard is like, I can't, they're never going to pay this much for practices anymore. And your, your point is, even if they don't and you stay an owner for another five years, you're still, and you grow that just what you've been growing, you're still going to be on the top side. Yep. And again, hear me, I'm not telling people not to sell their practice. If sure. somebody's 64 years old or if they're just fed up with the business aspects of running a practice and they just want to be an employee, but so many vision source doctors are really are good business people yeah. as well yeah. as being good doctors. Yeah. And they get, they get excited when two or three people are calling them wanting to buy their practice and throwing numbers around. Another important <laughs> question, Chris, is how much of that consideration is in cash most of the time it's 70 percent or so and there's Mm. some hook for the other 30 percent whether it's debt or equity and the business that's acquiring them and my my point there is more than half of these things are going to struggle Mm -hmm. because it's hard to find the leadership teams to execute and to do well they're all going to be highly leveraged with a lot of debt 
And if they don't do a good job of integrating all these practices and managing them well and driving, you know, more EBITDA, more profitability to the practices they acquire, they're going to get into a situation where that equity might be worth zero. Yeah. If you go back to the 1990s, you know, I like to look at history. When we were doing this at Concentra in the 1990s, so many of these physician practice management companies were going public. Hmm. They're IPO after IPO after IPO. And if you look at the top 10 public companies in 1997, names like FICOR and MedPartners and PRG and American Oncology, of the top 10, eight of them failed. Hmm. Eight. Wow. And the other two merged to become U.S. Oncology. So my point there is you can't expect that equity that you get when you sell your practice to really be worth something, history will tell you that there's a pretty good chance it could be worth zero. Yeah. What is the, what's the end game? So, so I, um, last week on the podcast, I talked to David Nelson and he is with Kepler and, um, and he, he actually used to be a vision source. He's a great doc. He's got a long history in our profession. Um, but, I tried to get to the end game. So like, and I've asked this a couple times on the podcast on with people to try to foresee like what's going to happen because there's two things that in my mind is one is that you can't save your way to profitability. Like they can't pay all of these. So if I can restate this, if I pay 10 times EBITDA, essentially what I'm saying is I'm willing to give you now 10 years of business profitability to buy your practice. And that means that I'm going to either have to hold on to it for 11 years or 10 years in a month, right, to make my money back, or I'm going to have to flip it sooner than that and and make 15 EBITDA or whatever the whatever the the multiple is. And so then I, I think, okay, well, what's the end game? You know, is there is it that everybody is going to end up in an IPO and then then it's like we've we've spread the the risk over so many people that we don't really care anymore. We've made our profit. We're out. I mean, what, is that the end game for all of them? I mean, I, I just, I feel like you can't, you know, and then the other thing, if I can make this point is that we really pay attention to our practice. I mean, because I'm in there every day and I'm watching, okay, well, how much are we spending? How much are we generating? How much? And I know that it's really challenging from afar to care as much about that individual practice um, as it would be if if it were in my hands. So because it's it's removed, if I have enough of them, okay, well maybe I'm losing a percent here, a percent there. So what's the end game? You can't you can't continue to just cost a good save your way. What do you think? That's a fabulous question. And you're right, these private equity firms as owners generally have a five-year time horizon, give or take. Sometimes an opportunity will present itself and they'll sell a business after three years because they've acquired right, they've grown those practices, they're reaching the peak of profitability, and they typically will sell them to a larger private equity firm. My eye doctor is a great example. They've been around, good business, $650 million in revenue, with Atlas as the private equity firm, announcement in June that Goldman Sachs' merchant banking arm was buying them for four times revenue, 18 times EBITDA. Yeah. And what they don't, I mean, these are smart people, but 
they see optometry as a sleepy, undermanaged, healthcare light, got this retail aspect. We can do a better job mm. managing the retail. We'll have these doctors seeing more patients, and every patient's going to be worth X because we're going to do a better job of following up on the patient in the optical part of the practice. And that's what my eye doctor has done, and apparently they've done it fairly well. But again, getting back to my experience at Concentra, Chris, as we started out, we were buying multi-location businesses just like my eye doctor, right. my eye doctor right. probably was when they got started. And typically something where a, a, one doctor owns eight locations, there are opportunities to make them better. That was our experience. Yeah, of course. And for the employed physicians, as we did that, their life was actually better because they were get, becoming part of something that was more sophisticated, something that had 50, 100, 200 physicians, career paths, better systems, better measurement, outcome measurements, et cetera. So, but once we got done, once we at Concentra got done with those large multi-site groups around the country, and we started buying Dr. Wolf and Dr. Brown and Dr. Smith. You've and, already consumed all the big ones. Yeah. Yep. And even though we, were, we really prided ourselves on having great relationships with our physician partners and having an environment where the physicians were happy, the single docs mm. who sold went from being owner to employee. Yep. And a year later, they were gone. Yep. Because things change. That, you know, these people who romance the seller and say, nothing's going to change. Well, that's so much baloney. Yeah. yeah. Things are going to change. Yeah. They have to change. They have to have you go from 18 patients to 25 patients a day to continue that trend where the business can be sold to the next private equity firm and then the next private equity yeah. firm. And as a seller, you might like the people you're talking to today, hmm. but you're going to have very little, if any, control over who they sell it to. So it's another I asked, important consideration depending yeah, on your age. Yeah, I, and I asked, I asked David about that. I said, David, how, how do you know that when they flip it the next time, you're going to be happy with the people that own that practice? And he said, I don't know. I can't know. And, and, and I think the bottom line with that from, from my perspective for him was that um, at least he's accepted that. At least he understands that's the risk. He's at a point in his career that probably in three to five years, he, he would be okay being done. But I think also he's, he's savvy enough in the profession. He's sharp enough that he can do a number of other things as well. And, and so I, I respect him for all the stuff that he's done. But I, then I asked him, which was really interesting to me, is I said, so David, if I'm a young doctor, I'm coming out of school, and I want to come in and I want to be a partner because essentially the way he described Kepler to me was that, that if they buy your practice then you have a, a partnership path. And, um, and I said, but let's say I don't already own a practice. I haven't built a practice that you want to buy. Can I become a partner over time? I'm a young doctor. I want to be a partnership. And he said, I don't think we have a path for that. So that's very interesting. So, so then, you know, here I am, 38 years old. I'm 11 years, 11 and a half years into growing my practice. Of course, I'm, I'm purchasing the practice from my dad and who's not ready to step away yet, which I don't want to step away anytime soon. But, the, um, but I think, okay, well, you know, we've got a young associate and she might want to buy into the practice at some point. Well, she wouldn't have that option. She'd be always an employee forever if she was with one of these groups. 
And so that's a challenge. With minimal, if any, real upside. So yeah. how are you going to attract the best and brightest to serve your patients yeah. 10 years from now? You're probably not. Yeah. If you look at dentistry, there's so tell me about 75 that. private equity-backed dental organizations. It's, but they've been at it for 20 years, Chris, and very few are deemed to be success stories. And the turnover of the dentists oh, who yeah. are employed it's crazy. is in like the 20% range. Yep. They just don't last. They don't and, like the environment. And they're, they're one-offs. You know, they'll be here on Monday, there on Tuesday, there on Wednesday. Yeah. That, I, the continuity of care that we've enjoyed in our practice could not be had um, in mass with me being in 132nd Dodge on Monday and Elkhorn on Tuesday and Papillion on Wednesday and, you know, uh, Gretna on Thursday. I mean, they just, you know, the, the type of care that we provide for our patients just wouldn't work that way. And uh, the buyer wants to separate you, the selling yes, doctor, yes. from your patients. I mean, it's just, it's good business if you're the buyer and I write you a check for a million dollars and you're 42 years old and for that million dollar check, you have a five-year non-compete. Well, if I don't separate you from your patients, year six, yep. I do something to make you think about starting again. You could open up across the street, yeah, and you still have those relationships. And guess what? The patients are going to follow. Yeah, yeah. And, my, and what I paid ten times for, to your earlier point, is nothing, worth zero. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the, that's why they want to separate you from your patients. It's interesting. We've seen in in Nebraska, we've had one group come in so far that I know of. One group that has bought two uh, multi location practices, and each of them were about five locations. One of them, so um, and it's a group that um, that a uh, a prior um, vision source. Uh, he must have been a DND. Um, yeah, a DND is kind of working with that group now. And he, uh, so a di director of network development. He's helping them buy practice. He's helping them buy practices. Okay. And so they bought a practice, uh, recently that had a location in a smaller town that had, they had acquired maybe two or three years before the private equity firm bought the larger group or the five, five or six location group. And, um, I just, I was at a, um, a Christmas dinner in in December, and the the doc that started that practice, that sold to the larger group a few years ago, that now sold to the private equity firm, got word in November they're closing the office. He's done out of a job, and 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 you know he was mad. He was not happy. Um, and I, I said, well, you know, I won't use his name, but I said, well, you know, what what kind of recourse do you have? He goes, well, I've got early retirement. I have no, you know, I, I don't have, I didn't have any say in the deal. And, and essentially what happened is they looked at the profitability and all those practices and they said, look, this is not worth us opening the doors every, every day and we're just going to shut it down. Now, I'm not saying that to be alarmist. It's just the reality of like, you don't have the control anymore. Even when, like you said, even when you sell to this group that you do trust, the first group, even in the second spinoff, it's like, you have no, you don't have any idea of the culture of that group or or what their values are or how they're going to generate different revenue and it it was like it was really shocking to me and and then then that same group um there's a doc that's been really involved over the years in the association that's with that group and 
what we're seeing, and, and I won't even just mention this particular story, but what we're seeing in general is that these docs that were like super, super involved are, yes, they're taking a step back. And, um, and on the one hand, I think uh, that I'm like, why is that the case? Well, I think it's, it's true. Okay, so we have a testimony next week in the legislature and I own my practice. And if I wanna cancel days on the patient, or you know, cancel patients on a day so I can be at the legislature and provide testimony, then I can do it. I don't have to take my vacation days. I mean, I, essentially, I am right. Doesn't have to be approved by somebody. Yeah, nobody home has office. to approve it. It's done, right? I, I get to I get to say, look, Kelly, I need my patients cleared that day. And yes, do I lose money? Yes, but but I that's that's something I get to decide to do. We're seeing that you know um, that. That pay, um, I'm trying to be careful because I don't want to disclose things that are privy, but people don't necessarily have that. You know, they, they might have vacation days, but they're finite. Oh, yeah. You're an employee. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You're making us you money. Get, you get, you know, four weeks a year. That's it. And if you want to collect your salary and stay on to collect maybe that other 30% two or three years from now, you follow our rules that's right. as an employee. I was in Iowa uh, recently in the fourth quarter of last year, and I heard some stories about people who'd sold in Iowa. And guess what? All of a sudden, the donations that they made yeah, to the boys' totally club, right. to the little league, totally right. to whatever, they couldn't make those decisions, even if it was in the best interest of their practice. Yeah, It was hard to get the money to continue making yeah. those donations. It's yeah. just little things like that that you don't think about. Yes. That can the decisions you make as a business owner that are going to be different. Yes. And again, and I can't blame anybody. I've, I've said this before, you know, if I were, if I were 65 years old and I couldn't find, and that's the, that's the challenge. And I, I'd love you for you to talk about some of the, um, some of the uh, things that vision source is doing for this. But you know, the challenge is that if I'm 65 years old and I'm, and I'm having somebody offer me, let's say eight times EBITDA and uh, maybe I could get, five or four, you know, um, from, from a young doctor coming up. I, I, I get it. I still think fundamentally, I'm, I'm idealistic enough to think that in the long term, I think patients are best served by private practice. But um, I, I, I can understand that aspect of it. What I, I just, um, so what what sort of programs are in place that you had developed over the last five years or so that you've been involved in helping develop with Vision Source to help plug those other students in so that they can have an opportunity and, and doctors don't just have to say, look, I can get so much money, I got I to gotta be out. The Vision Source brand was virtually unknown with optometry students. So over the last two or three years, there's been a tremendous investment in elevating the brand, elevating the vision that, oh, I can go work in private practice when I graduate. I might not be ready financially to start a practice or to buy into a practice, but I don't have to go work in a setting where I'm not necessarily utilizing everything that I've learned. So the pipeline that Vision Source had been able to build, and it is building is creating opportunities for those graduates to go work for vision source clinicians across the country. 
And once you get a taste of that as a 25-year-old, 23-year-old, you can see the quality of the care. You can see the ability to make your own decisions versus going to work in a setting where you're told what to do and how many patients you need to see and what products you're going to use and what equipment you're going to be That's right. allowed to use. And I was, I, again, from the beginning, back in 2013 when I joined, I was just so impressed with the medical orientation of most of our membership. And there's real, there's gold in those hills yeah. in terms yes. of utilizing the medical aspect. There's just such a need and it's a shame that some of these graduates may not get the chance to see that. So through Vision Source Next doing that, and then Chris trying to have administrators around the country uh, who identify members who are innovators and, and want to invest. And my dream would be that those little clusters buy out the 65-year-olds yeah, yeah. and put in a young doc as an employee initially, and those are the investors, and they're they're helping coach. And, yes. So and tell me, so, so that- Help that transition happen. Yep. And I'm not, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth or, but this is very interesting because it's a question that I, that I, that comes up often just in private conversations is, look, we understand how to run a business, right? So collectively, you're going to see, you know, 40 docs here tonight that I trust I trust to open my practice to, I trust to ask them about their opinions on how I'm going to manage patients and how I'm going to run my practice better. And, and largely they trust my opinions as well. And so, um, so with that, the, um, how, is there a mechanism? What's your vision for a mechanism whereby we could get together and say, look, this is, this makes sense for us to partner, to buy this practice you know, so it doesn't wind up in private equity and then just as part of an IPO. I mean, what are your thoughts about that? You know, my, my dream, and as I, throughout 2019, my vision that I was sharing with our parent company was to provide opportunities to have access to capital through the Essilor Luxottica strength, their balance sheet, to allow groups of doctors to come up with their own equity, and but then also to borrow at competitive rates and terms to be able to provide that exiting doctor a fair value for their practice and to do some of the things that we're talking about here. That, that's still a dream. I would hope that the Essilor uh, leadership ultimately embraces that and provides a pathway for vision source to self-perpetuate and to have those transitions. I mean, we have so many quality doctors who could be investors and maybe totally. own 10% yeah. of that practice with eight or 10 of your friends. And you put that new, that young OD into practice and you're coaching them and you're equipping them and then they're buying in, they're, they're buying you out yes, over time. Yes, yes. That's it's the, the dream. It's beautiful. Yeah. That, that is so, okay. So we just need to keep our foot on the gas for that. Yeah. So, um, so let me ask you this question. The more then. people that are mentioning that as an effective <laughs> solution, the better, in my opinion. Mine too. I think, you know, I think that, um, 
that we have an opportunity when you get to a point where, you know, on the one hand, I look at my practice and I think, look, I, I'm happy. I'm content. I, I love my practice. But I, but I also really believe in the vision of private practice over time. And I hate to see that, you know, that you have these practices that are going to die on the vine or they sell and ultimately they're going to, they're going to be a, my vision, again, this is jaded by me, but my vision is that private equity is going to ultimately wind up as just another commercial location that's going to be, uh, you know, another Vision Works or, um, or you know, name Walmart or whatever, right? So the um, that it's not going to happen in five years. It's probably going to happen in ten or fifteen years, and essentially, it's just one other avenue for people to see patients that they're not able to to provide the highest level of care um, that they possibly could. So the, um, I, I, I promise you there will be some dramatic failures. Oh, of course. Some of, of these course. organizations. Yeah. When I joined vision source, AOS had been out there and I think they had 80 locations in 15 States Yeah. and a couple of vision source optometrists had sold to them. And in the first six months I was here, I get a phone call from a doctor, Chris, who had sold to AOS and they had completely, you know, screwed up accounts receivable, went bankrupt, weren't paying the landlords. Hmm. So this doctor who had sold to them, could his door was locked in his oh practice. Gosh. He couldn't get in to see patients to fund his own salary oh, <laughs> because of their mismanagement. So, yeah, not everyone's going to sell. There's some percentage that are going to sell, but... Independent optometry, you know, through this beautiful model that Vision Source has sustained for nearly 30 years, is here to stay, in my opinion. There's the, uh, the abundance and the need of patients to see op- optometrists is only going to grow. Uh, there's no more, opth- you know, ophthalmologists are going to stay flat. There, there's a tremendous need, great opportunity. And uh, another thing that we haven't talked about that I think is just as high on my list is all the rural practices oh, that yeah. we have. Oh, yeah, my goodness. Because the private equity firms, well, there are 700 vision source locations in rural settings, hmm. Auburn, Nebraska, yeah. if you want to. Yeah, And the private equity firms are not going to buy those because it's hard to recruit yep. to those small towns of 3,000 people. But as those ODs near retirement age, if we can embrace teleoptometry and have somebody from Nashville, Tennessee, buy a practice that's 100 miles away and keep the real estate, keep the staff in place, use the equipment, allow the patients to keep going to that practice in that small town yeah. and use teleoptometry to, quote unquote, see the patient from Nashville and then maybe send an optometrist there once a week to see the patients who need face-to-face right. engagement. I love that. Yes. And I hope that the Vision Source team embraces that going forward because there's 700 of our colleagues who need an exit of some kind. Yeah. If they can't do that, then they may just end up shutting the doors yeah. as so many do in small yeah. towns. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, Mike Rothschild is, uh, you know, um, I talked to him and I'll probably have him back on the podcast about telehealth and teleoptometry because it's pretty striking when you see what we can do and it's just becomes an extension of really excellent care as opposed to, you know, the, what people automatically, you know, think about. Um, one last question, cause I want to be respectful of your time. Um, 
what so when I was talking last week to David, the comment that he made was that um, I, I'll just throw out the number two hundred practices across the country. I think that's low, that's high, but we'll just use that as a number. He he said that that Kepler had owned two hundred practices across the country, and that their goal was that. Um, that they would be able to negotiate with, because they own the practices, they can negotiate with payers. And so I immediately thought in Nebraska, what is the critical number that you have? Because in Nebraska, we had an independent physician association that was about 120 members large, and we still found it challenging to negotiate with payers. So I thought 200 across the country doesn't seem critical enough. And in your experience in healthcare in general with Paul Williams and all those other sorts of things, what are you seeing? What's the critical mass? Is vision source close? I mean, what? The problem is healthcare is so state specific and even beyond that market specific, Chris. Um, in addition to what I've done in the past, I serve on boards of a dermatology business, a primary care physician business, an autism business, and you need to have 30 to 35% market share of all the hmm. clinicians in a specialty in a market hmm. to get the attention of a health plan. 35%. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the some of the business models that have succeeded in that are anesthesiology is a great example because if you have a third of all anesthesiologists in Omaha, and you go to United Healthcare and or Blue Cross and say, "Hey, you know, give us a twenty percent raise or we're out." Yeah, that gets their attention because yeah. surgeries have to happen. Yeah, but most specialties are really at a competitive disadvantage. Even if you get to thirty-five percent market yeah. share, the health the hospitals can do that. That's right. You need hospitals and you need anesthesiologists. But when it comes to most other aspects of the provider world, it's really challenging. Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't count on it is my point. All right. Well, with that, uh, thanks, Jim, so much for, for coming on the podcast and being here with us tonight. Um, I really appreciate it. And I hope to, to do it again soon. Thanks for all your work. I can't thank you enough for what you're doing. This is fabulous and uh, really appreciates what you're doing to get the word out on all kinds of topics. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it.